I'm Andrew McNulty. Welcome to the Rise podcast series. For the last 25 years, I've met the best guys and girls around the world in regard to resilience, well-being, and leadership. I've been educated by them, coached by them, inspired by them, and certainly I've learned a huge amount by spending time with them. In this podcast series, you're going to get a download from those people. I hope you get educated. I hope you get motivated. I hope you get inspired. And yes, I hope you get activated to doing things differently in terms of your resilience, your well-being, and your leadership through adversity. Now more than ever, we as leaders in our own homes, in our own communities, in our teams, in our organizations, in our global companies, or in our small companies, we need to be more resilient. We need to become better leaders, and we need to rise higher. So it gives me great pleasure to have a gentleman of the name of Alan Kelly. I first met Alan Kelly in 1999. The team that I played on, the Armagh football team, were going extremely well in the Ulster Championship. And I read a few articles about him in treating people of household name in Ireland, like Morris Fitzgerald, Liam Hassett, Tony Boyle, DJ Curry, Dennis Hickey, Nicky English, Brian O'Driscoll, Tommy Dunn, Peter Canavan. He treated a who's who of the biggest stars in our sport. And I read about this gentleman and along the way I got a bad hamstring injury and I was told that he was the man to fix it. AK, you're very welcome on the Rise Hire podcast. It's great to see you looking a million dollars. Well, Andy, you know, sometimes I look down and I'm writing down the date and I can't believe I'm alive 21 years into the 21st century. It's very, very hard to believe. Like, I'm really out of hospital three years this year and 2018 was very, very difficult because my work came to an end in 2018 with the second cancer diagnosis. I was in the hospital for nearly a year. I was, had a secondary uh, cancer, which was called acute myeloid leukemia which was very, very difficult, and my life was threatened. Well, you're the best man i ever seen at enjoying life now in the present moment. And before we get into talking about your journey in cancer, can I talk to you a little bit about the GA stars that you've worked with? Because for all of our listeners all around the world, I'm sure they'll be fascinated to hear about what you learned from Dennis Joseph Curry, Nicky English, Brian O'Driscoll, Dennis Hickey, Podrick Harrington, Tommy Dunn, Kieran McGinney, Paul McGrain, Tony uh, Boyle, the great Tony Boyle. Of all the experience you had with those amazing athletes, Alan, what have you learned from them? Tell us some of the stories about what you learned from them. It's funny the guys you mentioned. The guys that you mentioned were all at the very, very, very top of their game. And every one of them had one thing in common. They were all ferociously driven. They were all winners and they wanted to win. And they were, had an incredible focus, especially when you talk about Kerry McGinney and Peter Canavan. My God, they had unbelievable focus. Brian O'Driscoll, Dennis Hickey, the same. They were at the very, very top of their game. And I was probably, I consider myself very lucky to have worked with that type of an athlete and Porrick Harrington as well for a long number of years. I remember playing in Crow Park in front of 85,000 people and at halftime, you'd be in the change room. You'd be there to, let's say, put tape on my ankle and what my ankle's tape for the second half and you'd tape it for me. Well, you see, it's, it's amazing. Everybody is different, you know, no matter who's ever. Some people can do the calm. There was a guy played for Armand on the wing, Andy McCann, and 
I used to maybe call him Rip Van Winkle. He'd never say anything, he'd never say a lot, but by God could he deliver on the day. Some people get a bit excited, they like to roar and shout, and that's what gets them geared up. But a lot of people just stay calm. So everybody is different. Everybody has their own little goals and their own way of doing it. What we're going to do is, Alan, talk a little bit now, if it's all right, about your journey uh, with cancer. And if it's okay, I'm going to bring you right back to 2015. I think that's when I first got a phone call from you about cancer. You might take our listeners around the world on that journey. Well, the diagnosis of cancer, and as you know, is never, ever easy. It's very, very difficult. And there was a time when you couldn't mention the word. I grew up in an era where you couldn't mention the word cancer. It was commonly referred to as the big C. And once you were given that diagnosis, you were sent home and it was prayer books, rosary beads, mass cards, and that was the end of it. But luckily, in the world we live in today, things have changed dramatically. Medicine has advanced about 21 years, as I said, into the 21st century. So the medical oncologists, the diagnostic equipment, and the doctors are so much better. And I owe my life to the very best of Western medicine. But I know you owe your life to the very best of Western medicine. But Alan, how you endured that adversity, I have never witnessed anything like it. I've never read anything like it. So on several occasions, you were told you had a week or even hours to live. And yet today, in the middle of 2021, I see a fit, healthy-looking man that looks a million dollars. Well, you see, and I, was, I was unlucky for a long time because when I was first diagnosed with cancer, I made a really, really big mistake. When I went to see my consultant, I had a transrectal biopsy and I would slept in a hospital for an infection after and I was really, really sick. But I was fully convinced that I was going to be okay. So when I rocked up in the Black Rock Clinic in the middle of July 2015, I felt a million dollars and I looked a million dollars and said, I'm going to get the all clear here today. And I will never forget it. From the day I go to my grave, he said to me and he looked at me and he said, Alan, he said, uh, we were very sick after the biopsy, but I have more bad news for you now. You have cancer, prostate cancer. And I, I never heard it. It just landed in the car park outside. The word cancer is all I had, and I couldn't speak. It was the first time I, 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 I just couldn't speak. I was dumbfounded, and I had nobody with me. And that was a big, big mistake. They're going for anything to do with your health, and it's anyway serious. It's very important to have somebody with you. And I could hear him typing and talking and typing and talking. And he handed me a piece of paper and he said to me, we need to move quickly now to make sure your cancer hasn't gone into your bones or vital organs. We have set up a couple of nuclear scans for you early next week. So I'd see you in a week's time. And I stood in the car park within five minutes with a piece of paper in my hand. And I couldn't even open the door of the car. I will never, ever, ever forget that. And, you know, everybody, you know, it's funny when it happens, everybody has their first phone call. Who are they going to ring? Who are they going to talk to? You know, what are you going to say? I, I, I was paralyzed with them. Like, the diagnosis of cancer it can paralyze your every waking thought and recalibrate your brain. And that's what happened to me. It paralyzed me that afternoon. My brain was, I, I couldn't think. And suddenly I composed myself and said, now I know who I'm going to ring. Everybody will have the first phone call. And I couldn't ring my family because I didn't know what to say because I didn't fire a shot. I didn't ask a question. I was just told I'd answer. I was going to wait two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, live, die or whatever. I never asked. So it's so important to have somebody with you. And you said the paralysis. And you made the first phone call. Who did you call? 
I'd probably call my best friend, my very, very best friend, Desmond and probably the brother I should have had that I never had. And he calmed me down and calmed everything down and said, we'll get a second opinion. And then I knew instantly then I was on the right track. was Jerry McEntee, the wonderful Jerry McEntee. Big, tough, hard Jerry McEntee in the matter. All Ireland winner, 87, 88. And the minute he answered the phone, I felt safe. It was amazing. I said, oh, God, that's great. And he said, no, we do nothing. We get everybody. I explained to him what the position was. That I, my score was off the scale, you know, my PSA score. And I needed a couple of nuclear scans. I boxed them all up and get them into me. Do nothing. See nobody, talk to nobody, do nothing. Within a week, he was back to me. And he'd organized me to see a guy called Dr. Kieran O'Malley. He was the current Dublin team doctor, Kieran O'Malley. Great guy. And we've become superb friends. I went in to see Kieran. He said to me, AK, he said, I've had more phone calls about you than anybody else. He said, just to be sure, to be sure, we're going to repeat all your scans here and we're going to do your bloods again. So I'm all up for that. So we repeated everything. He said, no, it is as it is. He said, you've got prostate cancer and it's quite large. So we need to take it out. When would you like it done? So naturally I said, never. <laughs> so we set the date. Ian, operation went really, really well. I was delighted. I was at a hospital within two, three days. And he said to me, cancer's a waiting game now. He said, I won't have any news for you for a week to 10 days. Just let everything settle. So it's a waiting game. It's how you handle the waiting game depends on how well you are. So I'm at home with a night and day bag. My cat was in and the whole lot. A week later, the phone goes. And when you see the phone, your stomach goes and you get paralyzed with not because the news is gone. And he said to me, good news, AK, we go. And I said, wow, we are delighted. I didn't tell him. I went back to the gym three days later with the bag strapped to my leg. I was walking all lot. I was delighted. He said, don't need to see it for three months. Three months later, I go back. And I said to him, I'd save the bother doing my bloods. I'd slip into the GP next door and get them done. And when I got my bloods done, I knew there was something wrong. The score was wrong. The score was very high. And he said to me, that's a typo. That's an error. That couldn't be right. He said, we redo them here. He said, your prostate is out. He said, you're clear. We did the bloods. They were higher again. And he said to me, and the words you don't want to hear when you have cancer, something has gone wrong. Didn't want to hear that. Something has gone wrong. It was Christmas. I said, you're not touching with Santa's on the way now. I said, I've got a little bit downtime at Christmas. Come back to first week in January. Come back to first week in January. I made a lot of scans, a lot of blood, and they found a tumor on my hip. My cancer was out. I now had metastatic prostate cancer. So I knew what I was facing into, and I didn't want to tackle it. So I said, would it be any chance for me we could go off peace a little bit and do something a little bit different? I didn't want to face into the dreaded hormonal treatment program. So he sent me to see my second consultant, Michael Mara, radiation oncologist. And he said, Alan, he said, for you, we'll try and zap it with radiation. So I had 26 sessions of radiation, which was very difficult. You know, you're very tired after the radiation. Did I hear well, you right? 20, did I hear you correctly? 26 sessions of radiation. Yeah, 26 sessions. And I drove myself in for most of them, except for the last two. And the last one, I fell asleep in the reception of the hospital for three hours. I was that tired after, you know. But after the radiation, I went and had my bloods done. And he said, I won't have results for you for a week. 
week later, rang me said, there is a God. We got it. So I was so happy. I've had the radiation and prostate removed. He said, don't need to see it for three months. So it was very funny. In that three months, I decided to fully embrace the $65 billion snake oil industry, as I call it. And I said, is that now I go on a really magnificent diet. I go on all the green juice and I go on the low GI bread. I go on the organic porridge and I go on the vitamin C and the vitamin A and the vitamin D. And I go on the Ayurveda and the Chinese medicine. And I'll make the green juice drink every morning. Every single morning I made that drink for three months. And people kept saying, my God, you look terrific. You look fantastic. You're going really, really well. Back to the hospital after three months, rocked in like a rock star, feeling fantastic. Operation done, radiation done, blood's taken. I was out of control. My stuff had skyrocketed. Couldn't figure it out. So they said, we'll have to send you to a specialist cancer hospital in Germany. They have a machine that we don't have here. There's something going on that we need to get to the bottom of. So I ended up in Heidelberg within a month after that in Germany, and they had all the kit and caboodle and all the machines and all the Germans, very efficient, really, really nice. And they said, your cancer is spread, it's out. We can see a couple of small tumors across your pubic area, one or two lesions in your chest. There's nothing for you only to enter into the chemical castration program, the hormone treatment program. That was the most brutal thing that ever happened to me. I lived in that river in Egypt for weeks and weeks. I cried myself to sleep every night for six weeks. I had rage, I had anger, I had denial, I had blame, I had all the physio, like when a footballer gets injured, he's rage, anger, denial, blame. I had all the main physiological responses until I finally came to an acceptance of my condition. That I'd lost, the battle, the cancer was out, and I had to accept that. And I had to put myself in the hands of, of really, really good doctors. So I was castrated on my birthday, and I'll never forget in that October. And it was so difficult. Hormonal treatment for man is very difficult because uh, testosterone is the primary driver of prostate cancer. So my tank had to be drained. And as you know, and I was always fairly hardy and tough, and I was good and I was out. And I was running and I was fit and I was strong. And that's what really annoyed me. I kept myself so well and the way I was. Never smoked, never drank, you know. And the hormone treatment program went on for six months, eight months, nine months, 12 months, 18 months. Awful. It meant that I had no control over my emotions. I would cry all the time. The bed would be just covered in water. I'd be sweating unbelievably. My body chart started to change dramatically. Like I lost all my muscle strength and my muscle tone. I became practically a female, you know? And I used to say to people, I'm trendy now, I'm transgender. I can be out in the morning or alien in the afternoon. But I came to an acceptance of it. And I did something that probably nobody would ever do. I got my radiologist to come to the clinic and on my skeletal chart, I said, mark my tumors. He said, are you sure you want? I said, mark, put them up there on the skeleton in big black pen. He said, you don't. I said, I want to do it. And every morning I talked to them. I said, we're all in this together. We're friends. Don't mess with me and I won't mess with you. And every day I made it my friend and I spoke to them. I said, I'm going to do my best and you're not going to trouble me. We had a relationship going on and I was going absolutely fantastic. I was 18 months, two years in and I was starting to recover. And all of a sudden my energy started 
to go down to Glen a little bit. I said, I need a holiday. So I took myself off to Spain for a holiday. So this is exactly what I need. But when I was in Spain, I got really, really sick. I started to get dizzy and I fell out of bat and I got all, there was a lot of stuff going on. I said, there's ah, something seriously wrong here now. And it was the first time ever I used my cancer as an excuse skip the queue on the way back from home on the plane. So I went straight into the hospital because my implant for my uh, hormone was due. And during the implant, the nurse said to me, oh my God, there's something going on. I bled badly, there was a lot of blood. I said, when are you going back to the consultant? I said, I'm going back to the consultant in two days time. I said, I'm really, oh, said, you're really, really sick. I was really sick. It was like pneumonia. I couldn't shake it up. And I went back to see my son, Professor John McCaffrey, medical oncologist, and he said to me, he said, Alan, you're green. AK said, you're green. I said, what do you mean I'm green? He said, what color green do you not understand? He said, I'm looking at your scan here. You have pneumonia, it's right through you. We need to take you in for a few days. If you're not well, your bloods have fallen off the cliff. So he took me into the matter and I was great. The food was magnificent. The looking after was just absolutely unbelievable. And he pumped me up on steroids and antibiotics. So on day seven, he said, we're going to let you home now just for two days. But just before you go home, we need to do a bone marrow biopsy. Very difficult. I subsequently had six more of them. So I didn't like the sound of what had to be done. So we did the bone marrow biopsy. Home I went. After two days at home, I wasn't new back until the Monday, I got out on Friday. I was feeling really good. And I remember phoning Nan, my secretary at the time, and saying, God, I feel really good after all the food. But I was on steroids in the hospital. I said, I'll be back to work on Monday. I'll be doing a bit of run and bushy. I'll be back to the gym. I feel really good. That week is such a crown me. I feel them. And I rang my son, <laughs> Steve, and I said, we'll meet in town over the weekend. We'll get a bit of food. I feel really good. He said, yeah, I feel really good. So we meet on the Monday after the hospital. So anyway, on the hot Monday, I was back in for the results of the biopsy. I'll never forget what I went. And I was feeling really good. And I looked good. The bone marrow biopsy, I looked at the results. And my consultant came out and he looked at me. And it was the first time he said my name. He called me by my name. He formalized it. He never, it was always AK, AK, AK. He said, Alan. Once he said, Alan, I knew I was in trouble. Immediately I knew I was in trouble. He said, you have a second cancer. He said, your bone marrow's failed. You've acute myeloid leukemia. And I'm afraid we won't be able to do anything for you. The team are on the way. Like some kind of Ghostbusters. The team are on the way. The hematology team came down. Within an hour, I was in the bed murdered to a trip. The head of hematology came into the ward, Michael Fay. What a wonderful doctor, Michael Fay. Oh my God, I am so much. He was just fantastic. And he said to me, Alan, we need to talk. Well, he said, I'm not exactly going anywhere. I said, I've the whole afternoon. And we said, I need your family. This is very serious. So I sent for my two heroes, Anthony and Steve, and my two sons. And it was the most difficult conversation I ever had to have in my life. He explained to them that my bone marrow had failed that I had acute myeloid leukemia, a very dangerous blood cancer. And my big son, Anthony, being the lawyer he is, asked the first question. He said, how long would my dad last without treatment? Oh, what happened to him? Three weeks at best without treatment. I said, we need to move immediately to try and save his life. I knew what was coming down the track. And I said to him, I said, Michael, I said, please don't put me into the ring unless I have a puncher's chance here. I said, I'm not afraid to die. Everybody dies, but not everybody really lives. And I had a good life, and my kids were up. And the only thing that was 
a little grandchild on the way, and I really wanted to see the little grandchild. And he said that the treatment would be exceptionally difficult, and there is a chance at any stage in the next six months we can lose you, but we've got to move to save your life. And the treatment was to say it was brutal, it was an understatement. I had 63 bags of chemo, 300 bags of antibiotics, 20 blood transfusions, eight bone marrow biopsies. All the time I was in the bed castrated with a hormone implant and I suffered from the prostate cancer. And the treatment went on and on and on, all through the summer months, right up to Christmas. And the only thing I was worried about, would I see my little grandchild? And my little grandchild was to be born in November. I remember saying to my daughter-in-law, is there any possibility he could come a few weeks earlier? He was born five weeks premature. I'll never forget it. But on Christmas, he said to me, if your bloods are anyway a little bit stronger all at Christmas, we let you home for the day. And I left for Christmas morning, I got out of bed, and I went down, I got a little mass in the little oratory in the hospital. And I prayed that by half 10, 11 o'clock, that he was going to say I could go home because my sister was waiting for me. They were all waiting for me. And he came and he said, yeah, we'll let you home just for three or four hours, but now it's Christmas day, you've got to be back in the afternoon. And just as I was getting dressed to go home, I could hear someone shouting my name. What ward is AK in? What room is AK in? It was Bernard Brogan. Oh my God, it was Philly McMahon, Michael Simons, Owen oh, Merchant, Kieran O'Malley, Jim Gavin. And, and I got so, when I think about it, I just got so emotional. I just couldn't hold back the tears. And I couldn't hold the cup. I was so weak, I couldn't lift it. I physically couldn't hold it in my hand. I just wasn't able to lift and they brought in all those. So uh, Billy McMahon, he was just fantastic. They were just fantastic. And it gave me, it strengthened my inner resolve. And I looked at them and how strong they were. I said, no way, baby. There's absolutely no way. I remember I said, focus. I said, no, focus here, AK. You're going to get well. You're going to be strong. You can do it. Say it, see it, and believe it. And repeat your mantra over and over and over again. You're going to do this. You're going to do it. So I was just, it gave me a huge lift when I saw how fit and how strong they were. And I said, no way. And my mantle was always the same when I was in that hospital. It's, un it's unfortunate to be sick, but it's unforgivable to look sick. I'm never going to look sick. I'm not going to look sick. And I got out that afternoon. I said, when I come back, the person in the ward behind me was dead. Two people had died. They were dying all the time on the ward end. All I could see was people with shaven heads and bags of chemo. I was constantly worried with the drips and bags of chemo on bald head. It was so, so difficult. Every day was really, really difficult. You had to stay focused. You had to stay in the moment. You couldn't drift into the next day, anytime into the future. And I, I, when, when the chemo would come out, I was getting two bags a day and an extra bag on a Wednesday, just in case you weren't getting enough. And I used, I used my visualization the very best I could. And my visualization, I visualized that I was in Spain, in the south of Spain, and I always traveled. And I'd be on the beach and I'd be lying on the beach and the water would be lapping up over my feet and I'd have my music, my rock and roll music, Ray Charles on. And I'd plug in the headphones and the girl would say, you're ready, I said, let it go. And I'd visualize it. Orange juice was flowing through my veins. I was singing at the top of my voice. And that's the way I got through. It was the only way I got through. But see, the chemo was very difficult. So what happened was you'd get the bag of chemo or the two bags, but you wouldn't be sick for four or five days after. And then the sickness would be, it would be off the scale how sick I would be then. You had prostate cancer, you had leukemia, you had skin cancer. Your business was up against the wall or nearly went to the wall.
You said that you, in the middle of all of this or before this, that you went through a divorce and, and financially things were really, really difficult. So how do you manage all that adversity? It wasn't adversity in one aspect of your life. So how do you manage all of that? It was very, very difficult. And in the middle of all the mad stuff, I lost my pension. I invested that and I lost it as well. So I really had not, I had not, but the, the mistake most people make is they're afraid to ask for help. Most people won't ask for help. But how did you get out of that? I needed help. And I knew the people that I had to turn to. And I was up front and said, look, this is what I need to put me back on my feet. I needed to rally around. But I remember when you made that call to me, Al. If, if you don't mind, I'm going to just bring you through that. Because not only would you ask for help, it's the way you asked for the help. You were you're pretty unique in that you would ask for help from me or any of the ladies or gentlemen. I think about people like Barbara Gallivan, for example. Darren Mackey, absolutely fantastic. Two of my great friends. And I've always said about cancer, the hands that help are always much holier than the lips that pray. But what you were unique, Alan, in, in that context, you would also bring energy. You'd bring positivity. You'd say, we're, we're going to find a way through this. So you almost got people to believe they were part of your team. Not that there was any individual helping you. You, you made a tribe of people around the Great AK believe they're part of a tribe that's going to help you endure this massive adversity. How did you have the wisdom to know how to do that? Well, it's known the people to go to, the people that you can really trust, and known that if they were in trouble, you would do it for them. But how did you know? How did you know it was Jerry McEntee was the man that called? It was Kieran McGinney? Was this over the last 25 years you knew Correct. the character? Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. You know. When you know, you know. And when you know, you know. You know who the people are. You know who to go to. And you know who... You you just got to open up and not be afraid. And once you put your cards on the table, it's amazing the way your friends will rally around you. And what about people, Alan, that won't endure and hopefully won't endure that cancer journey? What advice have you got for them to stay resilient in these difficult times? What advice have you got for them to rise higher in the middle of the challenging times they face in business or in sport or in relationships or in life? Realistic, measurable and attainable goals pertaining to your age, your lifestyle, and your present mental and physical condition. Most people set unrealistic goals that they're never, ever going to be able to achieve. And once they set them and they don't achieve them, it sets them back a lifetime. Small goals, achievable goals, then the next step, then small steps, baby steps, realistic, measurable, and attainable. When we were talking about the sports stars earlier on, Alan, we were talking about Dennis Joseph Curry. We were talking about the great Nicky English, Kieran McGinney, Paul McGrain. And we were also talking about maybe the athletes and the sports stars you worked with in the last five or 10 years. In that category, we're thinking, of course, about the Peter Canavans, the Sean Cavanaghs, and so on. But you mentioned they were tough. I vividly remember walking in to see in the Matter Hospital with Desi Farrell and the both of us knew that this was somebody who was much tougher than we ever claimed to be, much tougher than the toughest athletes we ever played with or against. So do you think there's a link between who's tough on the pitch in the gladiators arena and who's tough in life? You see, you never know until it's put up to. You never know how strong you are until being strong is the only choice you have. Nobody knows until it's a choice. Until it's the only choice you have. You never know until you have to make the choice. And I had to make the choice. But I wasn't afraid to die. And if you're not afraid to die, I wasn't afraid to die. Now, if you're afraid to die, 
That's completely different then. And the reason I wasn't afraid today, because everybody dies, if no one else was going to die, I would have been scared shitless to die. But I knew everybody around me at some stage will die. We'll all go at some stage. I love the way you mentioned a choice. I think it is Viktor Frankl who speaks with that concept between the stimulus and response, we've got a choice. But Alan, you must have had to make that choice thousands of times. It wasn't once. It was after every bag of chemo. Well, the most difficult thing ever happened to me was halfway through the chemo, I got the most unbelievable, uncontrollable headaches. I will never forget the pains. They were so bad that I couldn't stand up. I couldn't walk. I couldn't brush my teeth. And they were fully sure the cancer had gone into my brain. I knew if it had gone in there, it was lights out. And they said to me, we're going to do a CT scan in your brain and we're going to do a MRI on the brain. And I'll never forget the Friday morning it was done. And I was so sick and the pain in my head had dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped. And Michael faced me, probably won't have the results later on this evening. And all that day, I repeated over and over and over again, it's never the message. Forget the message. It's how you handle what's in the message. I said, no matter what message comes here today, it's how I'm going, and this is the way I'm going to handle it. If it's to be, it would be. And that's what I said to them. There's nothing you can do about it. It's in the hands of the Lord. Whatever the message is going to be. And he came back to me that evening, I'll never forget, 10 to 7 that Friday night. And he said to me, I have a little bit of good news. It's not in your brain. And I remember I burst out crying. And he said to me, you deserve that bit of luck, he said. It's just a side effect from all the chemo it's causing those violent headaches. We give you something a bit stronger to control it. Now, if the news had been bad, well, I wouldn't be here with you now. End the story. I'd be well gone. I'd be pushing up daisies or whatever I'd be doing. Every day, all around the world, we're meeting people that are saying that they're hugely struggling and they don't have the toughness that you have. Well, it's not that the toughness. Everybody's journey is different. And you've got to be very careful how you approach people. And the one thing that I didn't want to hear when I had cancer is there's a lot of toxic positivity that you've got to be very careful. You're well able for the war. You're well able for the battle. You don't have control over that. All you've got control is over yourself. You know? And the great thing is people who can listen and not tell you you need to do this just people who can listen i've got a buddy pork and he's a listener so i can dump people want to dump and people to listen there's a big difference with somebody coming in and they're preaching to you. you need to get up out of bed you need to swing your arms you need to do 10 push-ups four press-ups you need to go around the block three times stay positive so people don't want to hear that they just want to unload and what advice? Over a period of time, when they get your confidence, then they can move. And on. what advice would you have for them in the context of listening? A lot of people, as you say, don't know how to listen. They're not good listeners. Well, you see, what happens is they listen with the intention to answer, not with the intention to understand. They're so busy trying to formulate the answer, they don't understand. And I have a buddy who's a terrific listener. I can dump everything on him. You know, and he doesn't say a whole lot, and he listen. And some people just have a lot of stuff to get off their chest. And everybody's journey is different. And support comes in an awful lot of different ways. Support comes by some carrying your shopping home, making your bed, cleaning your apartment, doing things for you. That's how support comes. And finally, what three pieces of advice, Alan, would you have for anybody listening anywhere in the world? I think the great 
Australian journalist Bonnie Ware wrote a book, The Five Regrets of the Dying. It was a million, it sold millions of copies. And she interviewed thousands and thousands of people in nursing homes on their deathbed. And every single regret was the same over and over and over again. They compromised. They didn't live a life true to themselves. They were afraid. So show no fear. That's the first thing I say. And don't be afraid. And don't compromise your life. Because you only get one. Go for it every single day like it's your last. And never, ever be afraid. Brilliant. So the first big message there is don't compromise and go for it. What's the second big message for anybody listening around the world? Don't be afraid to ask for help and surround yourself with better people. Love it. Second very powerful message. And finally, the last word from the great AK from the Old Bond Clinic that spent his life looking after the Morris Fitzgeralds, the DJ Currys, the Kieran McGuinness, the Ronan O'Garas, the Barbara Gallivans, the Dennis Hickeys, the Brian O'Driscolls, the Nicky Englishes, the Big Show Tommy John, uh, the Podrick Harringtons, the Peter Canavans. What's your last word from the great AK? Live. And on that note, we close off on the Rise Higher podcast from the Seismic Studio here in Donnybrook. Alan Kelly, you're an inspiration. <laughs> You've been listening to the Rise podcast series, helping you to develop your strength, leadership and resilience in these remarkable times. Rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Andy McNulty. Thank you for listening.